It's good to see you all. Good morning. Children, you can... Oh, they're already going. I don't need to say anything. (laughs) Wow. That is amazing. Um, If you need a Bible this morning, you can raise your hand and an usher will gladly bring you one. Um, You've got some in the back here, Mike. Oh, there we go. Okay, so we are this morning in Psalm 77. You can feel free to open your Bible or turn on your Bible, whichever it is. As Phil mentioned um, in his prayer, he and Steve Pastouche and myself just got back from a trip to Croatia. We were there for 10 days. Um, for, for those of you who don't know, my family and I, we were missionaries in Croatia for, for nine years. Um, and so this was the first time we've gone back since we moved back to the States two years ago. And uh, it was a really blessed time connecting with different churches and pastors and seeing prospect of us as a church being able to possibly partner and, and continue to further God's work there. So it was a good time. We thank you for sending us. And I guess in returning, my gift was, hey, Ben, you weren't here for two weeks, so you're on double duty. <laughs> um, that is only a joke. Uh, Pastor Stephen is sick. He, I guess when you get tested for COVID, you get tested for all sorts of influenza. So he has influenza type A, uh, at least him and Sadie, uh, his, do- his oldest daughter. So you can keep them in your prayers. Um, and, I, and so I found out on Friday afternoon that I'm up to bat and that you, we get to take a break from John. We get to. That's not a, a good, necessarily a good thing. But we are in Psalm 77 this morning. And um, I will begin with a short um, story that I think connects well with uh, the text today. Um, we had Emily and I, uh, my wife Emily, who was singing with me, um, we had uh, some very good friends in town um, and very close friends. Um, and they were visiting us for a few days and she, so the wife, um, got a got a call from one of her good friends. So our friend got a call from her friend in another state. And she had just, uh, so our friend's friend, if you can track, yeah, um, she had just lost their baby due to a late-term miscarriage. And, um, and, and I know that there's some of you here today who can relate to firsthand that, that pain. Um, but this news hit our friend particularly hard because years prior she had lost her son at around 36 weeks of pregnancy. Um, they had received gifts. They had prepared the nursery. They had chosen a name. And they were ready to meet their baby. And then all of a sudden they learned that he was going to be a stillborn. Um, and so upon hearing this, our friend, she talked with her friend through um, the, the horrific news of, of this miscarriage and she came outside, we were sitting outside, and um, her husband and then Emily and myself, and she sat down and she just started to weep. Um, because it brought up all the pain that she had personally experienced from all those years before. And, and, and there was this really powerful moment that, that I'm never going to forget, where um, she is, oh my gosh, I have to hold it together. I've been really emotional recently. I, it's like crying in Croatia when I was preaching and 
miss all the people there. She, she, she was sitting there and um, she said through tears, it, it, should, it shouldn't be this way. And it, it was this moment where uh, we're, we're watching her relive this, the pain of losing her son at 36 weeks pregnant. Um, just reliving that. And she's, you know, when, when you're faced, she said something along the lines of when you're faced with, with death, and especially the death of your own child, you just realize things are not the way that they should be. This world is not the way that God originally intended it to be. It shouldn't be this way. And so the, the question really is, what do we do when we're faced with evil, right? What, what do we do when we're faced with the death of a child? What do we do when, we're, when we find out a loved one has cancer? Uh, what do we do when we hear of war and death over in Europe? And, be, and the reason I ask, what, what do we do with this, is because um, as Christians— we, and, and what is very evident throughout the whole Bible is that we, we serve the almighty God who is loving and compassionate and merciful, gracious and kind. He's the God who's made promises to bring about his kingdom and to crush evil and to wipe away tears and pain and suffering. And yet, a stillborn child is born. It doesn't seem that way, right? And this is, this is the dilemma that this psalm gets at. This is the dilemma that this psalm addresses. And the, the, the big idea of this psalm is, despite the troubles of this life, God's character and promises stay the same. And we're going to explore this in three parts. So we're going to see the psalmist's trouble, and then we're going to see the psalmist's doubts, and then we're going to see the psalmist's remembrance. So the psalmist's trouble, his doubts, and his remembrance. And so we start reading the first three verses. It says this, I cried aloud to God, aloud to God, and he, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In, in the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. So n- notice the language here in these verses. It's, it's pretty visceral and, and, and um, you, you can see this man almost just keeling over in pain and just reaching up towards heaven with his hand. It's a, it says he's reaching out all night long without wearying. And, and it's, he's inconsolable. My soul refuses to be comforted. Second verse. He's suffering He's desperate. He's inconsolable. And what's interesting is that he doesn't actually name what the problem is. Nowhere in the psalm do we see what the problem actually is. Um, and it might be, what this text might be referring to, is this, this psalm is put in the third book of the Psalter, which talks a lot about the suffering that the people of God went through when they were in exile. And there were promises made to the line of David where 
God was going to bring about this everlasting kingdom and flourishing and blessing through the nation of Israel. And they kept rebelling against God and breaking the covenant. And now they're in exile. Maybe this is why he's crying out. I'm in pain. The exile was, was just this brutal thing. It was God's judgment on his disobedient, unfaithful people. Sending them out of their land. And they were plundered by their enemies. But we don't know. The text is really ambiguous. We just see a man keeling over in pain, reaching out to God, inconsolable, suffering in the depths of despair. And so, while we don't know the exact nature of this man's trouble, the fact that this text isn't specific, I think for us, it invites us, then, as the readers, to enter into the psalm with our own troubles and our own hardships. And so we see the psalmist is in trouble. He's crying out. But notice then in verse 3, when he, so this man is suffering, he's in trouble, and then he starts thinking about God. And, and, and when he starts thinking about God in the midst of his trouble, uh, what, is, what does it produce? When I remembered God, I rejoiced. Is that what it says? When I remembered God, I moan. When I meditate, that is, on God, my spirit faints. This man is suffering and in the depths of despair, and he's reaching out to heaven, thinking on God, and all it produces is more pain. It's really interesting. So we ask why. And so we move from, we start moving in verses 4 through 9 from his trouble to his doubts. So notice, it says in verse 4, you hold my eyelids open. So he's, it's, it's almost like he's blaming God for his trouble. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I'm remembering the good old days. I'm remembering when, it was, when the grass was greener. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. And I was happy when I was joyful. Let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. So he keeps recounting his pain. He's trying to think of the past and it just, it, it, it doesn't actually do anything good. It just brings more dismay. And then he says at the end of verse six, then my spirit made a diligent search. Verse seven, will the Lord spurn forever? And never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? So he's, we, we, we see two things. The psalmist is questioning two things. The psalmist is questioning the character and the promises of God. He's in the depths of despair. He's looking up and he sees God and he just sees more pain because he's like, I thought you were loving. What about all your promises? Specifically though, what's really interesting is that these verses 7 through 9, he's alluding to Exodus 34, 6 and 7. And if you know anything about Exodus 34, 6 and 7, um, well, let, let me read it. 
It says this, Exodus 34, 6 and 7. The Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. These two verses in Exodus are the moment it's the, it's, it's the moment that God, for the first time in the Bible, explicitly reveals the core of his character as an abundantly merciful God to the people of Israel. So he, it's for the, it's, this is literally, if you're reading, if you start in Genesis 1-1 and read all the way up to, this, to, to, to these verses in Exodus, this is the first time where God explicitly says, this is who I am. This is who I am. In other words, if you are going to know something about me, This is what I want you to know. And the amazing thing is that God reveals his abundantly loving and gracious and merciful character in the context of the Israelites having just committed spiritual adultery and stabbing him in the back by creating and worshiping the golden calf in Exodus 32. The God who was going to destroy them for their idolatry turns in mercy and does not destroy them. The point is, is that these verses show that God is merciful towards those who don't deserve it. And so as you read the Old Testament and you read the rest of the Bible, these verses became, for the authors of the Bible, the, the, capital T, the definitive summary for their understanding of God's character. If they could give a summary statement on who, who is God, if somebody asked them who is God, they would say, go to Exodus 34, 6 and 7. These are the most quoted verses in the entire Bible. And so for the psalmist, he's in the depths of his, he's in the pit of despair and suffering, reaching out. And he quotes these verses and says, God, I, th- I thought this is who you are. Didn't you say this is who you are? But it's not just that. It's also that he questions God's promises. See, God being the merciful and gracious God that he is made promises to his people to bless them, to fight for them, to bring about an eternal kingdom through the line of David. And so we return to my question that I asked, why? Why does thinking about God in the midst of his troubles cause the psalmist so much pain? Why can he, he's, he doesn't rejoice, he moans. The the why is answered in this. The psalmist does not know how to reconcile the reality of his suffering and his pain with the revelation of God's abundantly merciful and loving character and his promises to bless. He says, "I, I am experiencing this. How can you be that? How can what you said be true? I thought you were good. I thought you were loving. I thought you made promises. As one author put it, the psalmist, he's angry and he's disappointed with God. And isn't this where we tend to go, and I'm including myself, when we're faced with hardship? It's easy to doubt God's goodness, his integrity, his character, his promises. 
And here's the reality. Our troubles and our hardships, they don't necessarily need to be something big. It, it, It can be cancer or death or war. But it could also be the monotonous wear and tear of living in a world ruined by and infected with sin and evil. Depression, breaking an ankle, mental illness, injustice, racism, broken families, sickness, financial stress, emotional pain. See, suffering is, is relative. I, I, I read that in a book. I, I don't know which book, but it was, it, it was really helpful to me. Sometimes I could be going through something that is really hard for me. And somebody else could look at me and go, why the, grow up. <laughs> like that's why, why is it so hard for you? And it, it could go both ways. But the reality is, is that we all live in a world that is ruined and by, ruined by and infected with evil and sin. We will all face suffering to a degree in this life. But the amazing thing that I see in these verses is that God doesn't condemn the psalmist for his questions or for, his, or for expressing how he feels. He doesn't condemn him for his confusion. This man is crying out, will the Lord spurn forever? Will he never again be faithful? Favorable? Sorry. Has his steadfast love forever ceased? God, what is going on? And not once do we get any hint that God condemns him for asking questions and expressing how he's feeling in his confusion? And the, and the fact that God allowed this in his word tells us that when we're faced with adversity and troubles, it's, it's actually good to lament. It's good to weep. It's good to ask like Psalm 88 or 89, it says, how long, O Lord? How long? And, and, and I, think, I think the idea of lament is, is hard for us in the West. Um, I, this is what I really appreciate about my brothers and sisters in Croatia. <laughs> they have no problem telling you that they're having a bad day. <laughs> so here, I, here I, I've realized that, that in the States, correct me if I'm wrong, after, not now, but after the service. Um, we, 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 we don't ask how are you, necessarily, because we're actually asking how, how are you. We're asking it as a greeting. Hey, how are you? Oh, good, how are you? Good. Let me move on. And, and, and if, but imagine that, that I walked, that you walked up to me. You said, hey, Ben, how are you? I said, you know what? I'm having a horrible day. You'd be like, what's wrong with that guy? You know? Like, there's this expectation for us to always be good. I'm good, I'm, I'm doing great, yeah, yeah. <laughs> And I remember the first time we were living in Croatia, and, and I, I love this. Asking how are you is a serious question. So when we first moved over there, we would say, we were translating in our minds, and we would just greet people like we do in the States. Hey, how are you? And then they'd start going on about all the troubles that they're going through, and their horrible day, and how they hate their job. And, and we're, we're just turning and talking to the next person. We totally offended people. Because to ask how are you in their culture is, is a serious question, and they're going to tell you. So we would frequently hear, hey, how are you? And they would say, oh, I've had better days. <laughs> it's just not our typical response. And, and I say that because I, I, I think this reflects 
that we have a hard time saying, I'm having a hard time. Or do we translate that in our relationship with God? How long, oh Lord? How long? The, the point is, is it's okay to let God know how we feel. It's okay to be honest with God. Like he can take it. He's not a wimp. He's not an emotional dwarf. He can take hearing from us. How long? And yet, as we continue to read from verse 10 through the end, we see that the psalmist, while he does express his despair and his confusion and his questions, he doesn't live in despair. He doesn't live there. Let's read in verse 10. Then I said, I will appeal to this, the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O Lord, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. And with your arm you redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph, Selah. When the water saw you, O God, when the water saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled, the clouds poured out water, the skies gave forth thunder, your arrows flashed on every side, the crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind, your lightnings lighted up the whole, uh, lighted up the world, the earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. So we've seen the psalmist's trouble. We've seen the psalmist's, what did I say? His doubts. Thank you. You know my sermon better than I do. We've seen this, this, the psalmist's trouble. We've seen his doubts. And now we move on to his remembrance. So look again, verses 10 through 12. He says, I will remember the works of the Lord. I will remember his deeds, his wonders of old. But then notice what specifically. So he says, I'm going to remember God's work. So he's in this pit of despair, questioning, crying out, what is going on? And he says, I'm going to remember the works of God. But what specifically does he remember? What events specifically does he remember? And what we see in verses 13 through 19 is that he remembers the Exodus. And he remembers Sinai. The Exodus was the moment in Israel's history, where God powerfully redeemed them from slavery in Egypt. He defeated their enemies and he constituted them as his people. This was a moment in history where the greatness and the glory and the might of God and his power to save was revealed, laid bare for the nations to see and Israel. And, and this is what he gets at in verse 13. What God is great like our God? It's a rhetorical question. There is no one great like our God. His might does not match up to anyone else's. So he's, he's looking back at the Exodus and then God leads them out and leads them to Mount Sinai where he constitutes them as his people. Remembering God's power and his greatness. But there's more. It's not just that the psalmist remembers the power of God to save and redeem, but he also, in remembering the Exodus and remembering how God led them to Sinai, he, the psalmist also remembers God's resolve to bring about his plans and his promises. And that's most seen in verse 20. You led your people like a flock. The shepherding hand of God. 
See, the Exodus revealed that God was, it not only revealed his power and his might and his glory and his ability and desire to save, but it also revealed that God was carrying out his plans to fulfill his promises to form a nation from the line of Abraham. This is Genesis 12, 1 to 3, the nation of Israel. It's God, so the Exodus shows that God, he was committed to carrying out his plans and fulfilling, fulfilling his promises to form a nation from the line of Abraham and then through them to return blessing to the world and bring salvation to sinful humans. That's what the Exodus also points to. It points to God's resolve to lovingly lead them like a shepherd and bring about his purposes through them. In other words, When the psalmist says, I will remember the works of the Lord, like we said in verses 10 through 12. When he remembers the Exodus and all the events surrounding it, this points to the fact that God has a plan and that he will powerfully overcome all obstacles to fulfill his promises. And so then it's in this way that the psalmist answers his own questions regarding this dilemma between the loving character of God and his promises and his own despair and trouble. He answers his questions, which I'm going to read again in verses 7 through 9. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has he forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? And his answer in looking at the Exodus is a resounding, definitive no. It's in this way that the psalmist's situation, his hardships, his feelings do not have the last word, but God does. See, he looks to the past for confidence in the character and promises of God in the present that he might have hope for the future. In other words, God's working in the past is the proof that he will continue to accomplish his plans and fulfill his promises to his people. He is gracious and loving. He has not forgotten his promises. And so then the question for us, what does my friend do with a stillborn baby? Because we don't look to the Exodus, right? Like we, the actual Exodus and Exodus. But we do look to the ultimate exodus in Christ, right? What do we do when faced with life's troubles and despairs and hardships and when we're in the pit of the horrors of evil? And what we do is we follow the psalmist's example, except we look to the cross. We look to the resurrection of Jesus. The cross is the decisive moment in history where God's merciful and loving character is most fully manifest. It's through the cross and the resurrection that we see Jesus allowing evil to crush him that he might in turn turn evil on its head and put it in the grave. Right? The, the cross and the resurrection is the moment where we see God overcoming all obstacles to save unworthy sinners and to bring about his good kingdom. And so just as the exodus was this place of remembrance where he could look back and see God's faithfulness and his loving character. The cross and the resurrection prove that God has a plan and that he will overcome all obstacles to fulfill it. 
It proves that his character and his promises are true now and that they will continue to be in the future. So we as New Testament believers then are to look back at the cross and the resurrection of Jesus because it's the guarantee. The cross and the resurrection is the guarantee, despite the evil that we currently see and experience, of God's abundantly loving and merciful character and his resolve to consummate his kingdom, to crush evil and restore the world. God is not a deceiver. He is not a liar. I want to read a larger text from Romans 8. It's a little unconventional, but I think it communicates this well. I would flip to Romans 8. We're going to start in verse 18 and read all the way to the end. It says this. Romans 8, 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was, sub- was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, this is, this is that suffering, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches Hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also Uh, Called and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, this is looking back at the cross, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, it is in all these things that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord.
My friend who was at our house was right when she said, things should not be this way. And the reality is, is that God agrees with her. The cross and the resurrection are the proof of that. The cross and the, resu- and the resurrection are the proof of God's resolve to make things right. And so when we are faced with the horrors of evil, we should cry out to God. We should let him know how we feel. We should lament. And yet we should not live in despair, but rather lean into our abundantly merciful, loving, promise-keeping God. We should trust in God, looking back to the cross and the resurrection for the confidence now as we eagerly wait for the sure fulfillment of his good plans and promises. Amen. Lord, we thank you for your abundantly merciful and gracious character. And we ask as we journey through this life, as some of us maybe even today are facing hardships indescribable and we feel inconsolable with the reality of your character and your promises, would the cross and the resurrection be the the moment in history that we look to for confidence now in who you are and that it would give us hope for the future fulfillment of your plans and your purposes. We pray and ask these things in your name and for your glory. Amen.